Azarius Capital Management is an independent investment advisor registered with the Pennsylvania Department of Banking and Securities. This company interview is being provided for information purposes only. At the time of this interview, Azarius holds this company's security in client portfolios. However, they should not be perceived as a recommendation to purchase or sell this security. There is no assurance that the security discussed herein will remain in a client's portfolio at the time you receive this report. The security discussed does not represent a client's entire portfolio and in aggregate may only represent a small percentage of a client's portfolio holdings. It should not be assumed that investments in this security were or will prove profitable or that the investment recommendations or decisions we make in the future will be profitable or will equal the investment performance of the security discussed herein. Azarius does not receive any special compensation from this company. This should not be considered a solicitation to do business in any jurisdiction where Azarius is not permitted to do so. Welcome, I'm Darren Heitman, the founder of Azarius Capital Management. Our firm specializes in identifying companies and industries on the cusp of a fundamental recovery. If you, if you follow us on Twitter or you have listened to our earlier podcast, you probably know us for our bullish outlook for uranium. But today I'm pleased to bring you our inaugural episode of our C-Suite interview series, where we share our conversations with executives of publicly traded companies. Our objective with this series is twofold. First, we wanna provide a platform for small cap companies that are underfollowed and perhaps undervalued to tell their recovery story directly to you. And second, we wanna provide some insight and the characteristics and trait that we look for in our due diligence process. Today, I'm joined by Paul Hockfeld, the Chief Financial Officer of Hooker Furniture. Hooker Furniture is a manufacturer and importer of furniture, residential furniture, for the U.S. market. It has a market cap of around $380 million, and it has revenue of almost $700 million in a more normal environment. Paul and I held our conversation in late December. I hope you enjoy it. Why don't we jump in? Um, I do really appreciate you joining us and being willing to do this. Uh, I, I'd like to start with just hearing about your background and when you joined Hooker and what your experience has been professionally. Okay. Um, I'm a lifetime accountant, graduated from the University of Georgia in 79. and worked through various division and and plan accounting jobs, uh, landed here in, in, in Martinsville with a textile company. Most of my career was in textiles and landed here in Martinsville with a textile company, which subsequently, you know, offshored textiles offshore quicker than furniture. Mm -hmm. um, family decided that it was important to stay here. And I, I took an internal audit role at Hooker Furniture 16 years ago. And it's worked out well for me. I've been in progressed through a, a various accounting management roles and took on the CFO role just under 10 years ago. Uh, and it's, it's a terrific company. It's a, it's, I think it's a really unique culture. Glad I, glad I wound up here. Uh, it's been great for me and my family and, and we enjoy, we enjoy being part of the community. And I think my kids who I never thought would stay here have decided that, that Martinsville is home too. So it, it's, it's just really been a great move. Well, lucky you that, uh, that, that sounds great. I don't know how I feel about my uh, kids living uh, living close to home. The, the the closer it gets to them moving away, 
the more uh, the more I want to hold them close close to home. So we'll see how that goes. My kids are a little older than yours, I'm sure. So a little bit. You know, we've seen them go through that cycle of being gone and, and coming back and, and deciding to make it home. So so it's it's a great community. Well, you said something interesting about Hooker having a great culture. Um, what what do you mean by that? What are some examples? Well, I'm a 16 year employee and I rarely, I'm rarely the, the, the most tenured person in the room. Our current CEO who's retiring at the, at the end of January is a 38 year employee. I've got several 40 year employees on my staff. Um, it, it's a, there's a real sense of family and cohesion. I, I think that we, we, we treat our people well and we have a lot of loyalty from those people. And you know, it's sort of that, maybe it's a, the old, you know, small town culture where people stay, but I think it's because they stay because, because the, the company develops that sense of family and community and, and you know, we watch out for each other. Uh, anytime there's a, you know, a personal, either a celebration or a tragedy, everybody participates. Um, if you have a, a, a death in the family, you get a mailbox full of cards, of condolence. Uh, people, you know, it's, it's, it's that small town sense that, that maybe you don't see in a lot of bigger cities. Uh, with a lot more transient populations. Um, the, the previous CEO sort of set that tone and the current CEO has, has continued it. And I think that the board and, and the, the, the new future CEO is also of that same mindset that this is a, it's a, it's a unique place and a unique sense of family. Well, tell me briefly about the new CEO. I assume he's an internal promotion? Yes, he is. Uh, he's, a, he's a lifetime furniture guy has worked his way up from being a floor furniture salesman at, at a retailer in, in Texas to a, a road sales rep to an executive at smaller companies. His name's Jeremy Hoff. And uh, he's been with the company about three years, brought in as, a, as head of our imported upholstery division, quickly rose to head of our upholstery and case goods division, and, and then also to all of our legacy hooker businesses, which are the import business, the import upper end case goods, imported upholstery and domestically manufactured upholstery, which, which is still an important part of our businesses. We do have domestic operations mm -hmm. in leather and fabric upholstery. So Jeremy heads up all that right now and will take over as the new CEO on February 1st. Okay. Uh, um, inspiring, inspiring guy, a, 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 a real team builder. I think everybody's really excited to, 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 for his leadership to take over. It's probably a little early to, um, to discuss what changes he might have in mind. Um, and I know culturally, as you just went, as you just uh, reviewed for us, when you have a really strong culture and it's a company that has historical success, it's hard, it, change isn't always embraced. Um, and it, it's not always needed, but um, to the extent you already know what he's uh, might, might have in mind for changes, can you discuss that? Sure, let me back up a little bit. It, Hooker traditionally has been a somewhat adaptable, you know, not a bleeding edge company, you use that cliche, but we have been adaptable. Uh, in the mid eighties, we started importing furniture. Uh, originally it was just, you know, small pieces, umbrella stands and coat racks, and things like that. But we developed a, a fair amount of competency in, uh, in importing before, uh, before the, the, the real rush to offshore occurred. So I think we had a little bit of a head start there. And in fact, during the, 
the big transition from domestic fur wood furniture manufacturing to to imports, sales grew every year, even as we closed plants here. As, as, and as painful as it was to close plants, you know that was the, the economic pressure. Um, we've adapted to e-commerce. Wayfair is a, is a big customer. Um, and I think we adapted fairly early while also protecting as much as we can our, our um, traditional furniture customers. Um, as, the, as the business changed, we acquired uh, domestic, manu domestic upholstery manufacturing. Uh, and then a few years ago, we acquired, uh, made a big acquisition, a $100 million acquisition of a, a company that sells it to, to larger mass market um, retailers uh, and, and a lot of alternative channels like clubs, like e they had a big Wayfair and, and other e-commerce presence. Um, that's uh, the Home Meridian division. We, uh, so we've adapted to, to changes in distribution. We've adapted to changes in product demands. Um, we, uh, I, think, I think we evolve, uh, and, and I think we're not aggressive about evolution, but we certainly recognize the need. So uh, I, I think that Jeremy will continue that evolution. I think he's, he's got to focus on diversifying within divisions. You know, right now we have a, a dozen separate divisions that sell in different channels, different price points. And I think even within those individual divisions, they can be diversified so that we're not focused entirely on big retailers, but you know, also have products for smaller retailers that sell at the same price points. Um, balancing channels of distribution while trying to protect other channels of distribution. So I, I think that that's Jeremy's goal is to grow sales by, by internal diversification. Okay, now that's, um, that's, a, uh, that's an important topic. We're gonna come back to that because I didn't do a good job of setting the table. So if someone is just tuning in for the first time and being introduced to Hooker Furniture, I guess it's implied by your uh, corporate name that you're in the furniture business, but maybe you could describe the business, the different categories you're in, the different channels by, by a percent of revenue perhaps. Um, well, we're pretty broadly diversified. We say we've got about a dozen different business units selling from the mid upper end wood furniture, which is our hooker furniture namesake division. Um, we sell imported upholstery in that, in that same upper mid category. We have uh, three domestic upholstery divisions that sell, um, one sells high end leather furniture, primarily uh, a, a lot of it made to order. Uh, another, another division sells uh, Probably slightly slightly lower level, but still uh, still upper mid or, or mid mid priced um, fabric upholstery, which is is also generally made to order. And then we have an OEM manufacturer that manufactures uh, fairly high end product for uh, um, lifestyle specialty stores, which is a growing channel. And and, a, and another one of our diversifications is is the move to to. To address the, the growth of lifestyle specialty stores like Break and Barrel, Room and Board. Okay. We also sell um, in our home reading division. We sell to to more mass market major chains, the Haverty's, Raymore and Flanagan, Rooms to Go, which are more pop mid priced mid um, wood both wood furniture and through another division. To, uh, we sell um, um, upholstery. A lot of it motion leather upholstery at uh, popular type price points, including um, some, some 
licensed items. Um, we also have a couple of, uh, of commercial divisions, one that sells to uh, the senior living industry, and it, that sells both upholstery and case goods, and then a, uh, another division that sells in the hospitality business. Uh, three, four, and five-star hotels on a like a custom job basis. Hmm. Okay. Um, <clears throat> it sounds like you have pretty much every price point and every distribution channel uh, pretty well represented. So that you're not really over-indexed to any particular in-market or or uh, category of of residential furniture. Right, we, we believe that diversification is important uh, and we've seen that even through, through the, the ups and down cycles of some of our, of our acquisitions. Uh, we, we believe that generally the, uh, the furniture industry is about a $100 billion market. Uh, we believe we cover about 75% of that in, uh, in one division or another. We have it, we're access to about 75% of that $100 billion. We don't sell at the very high end or at the very low end. Um, we are we're starting a ready to assemble division. However, that you know that's that's in that hundred billion dollars, and that's probably at the lower end of that. So so we don't compete much at the lower end. I see. Uh, I'm sure someone who is watching this will be curious about your sourcing. So I uh, I know that's undergone uh, quite a bit of change over the last 24 to 36 months. Uh, so where do you get your product? Uh, well. Vietnam is our primary supplier right now. Uh, maybe 75% or so of our imported products come from Vietnam. The balance, mostly from China. We have a small presence in Malaysia, small presence in India, and are looking at alternative sources. And I think that that's gonna be one of the models for the future is we're always gonna be having to find that next alternative source. Where would you guess that's going to be after Vietnam? Uh, <clears throat> I think for wood furniture, we'll probably move to other parts of Asia. Uh, in some cases, some product may go back to China, you know, depending on, on trade dynamics. Uh, I think India, Indonesia, Malaysia all have growing furniture industries. We are also looking at Mexico. I think there's a resurgence of, uh, of some furniture manufacturing coming out of Mexico as well. So I think, and, you know, and that goes back to that adaptability is that, uh, <clears throat> that the whole industry has to be adaptable. And of course, you know, global trade is so dynamic that, uh, that, that we probably don't have any sort of permanent establishments anywhere, unfortunately. Um, so is there, so you guys design the furniture and then you outsource the manufacturing for the most part, you have some uh, internal manufacturing for the most part though, you you design it and then import it from a, from a right. contract manufacturer, correct? Correct. So how would you describe your core competency? I mean, what, what is the value proposition of Hooker? The value proposition of Hooker Furniture is to be able to bring all the pieces together. Um, we, uh, we use primarily contract designers and our merchandising staff you know, selects the correct designers, the proper designers for the, for the projects. Um, those projects are sampled, uh, you know, we, so we, we control that whole process so that, you know, the, the customer tells us, can tell us what they want or, or in the case of, of our open stock products, you know, the, the, the customer base in general tells us what they need. Uh, 
we develop those products, sample them, you know, show them, refine them, and then offer them for sale, uh, doing all the logistics, all the quality work, uh, locating the sourcing. So I, th I think that, you know, many of our customers, especially our, our chain, big chain retailers, could do, could do this themselves. But I think what we offer is the expertise, the ability to, to pull all these pieces together from, from our, our deep bench strength, our, our resources, you know, and, and that some of our customers do source directly for some of their core products. But we're able to, there's still a place for us, we're able to bring in, um, whether it's accent pieces or special products, um, I think there's still a space for both in this industry. And I think, you know, the, like the risk of disintermediation is where everybody goes with that. Yeah. Um, I think that we've proven over time that there's a place for, for both models, both the direct sourcing and the sourcing through Hooker um, to work. Uh, we also, um, we also on the Hooker furniture side of our business, which is primarily warehouse business, where you know, a lot of the big retailers we deal directly, do a direct sourcing containers from Asia. On the hooker side of the business, we carry um, $80 million of inventory here in the US ready to ship. So a small retailer can hold samples on the floor and just order when a customer, when a customer places an order, they can order directly from us and we can, we can drop ship product or ship it to the retailer who will then deliver it. So, so being in stock with the right products is, is, is an important part of our core competency too. And I think that's also a function of our financial strength is that, that we've been able to be in stock. Uh, honestly, we're struggling a little bit to stay in stock right now because demand is so strong. But typically that's another one of our core competencies is being in stock with the right products. Okay, yeah, that's um, the way you described it. I mean, there's, there's very attractive uh, aspects of that. I mean asset like business models are all the rage. That's where you get high returns on capital. Um, but as you, as you pointed out, the risk is potential dis, disintermediation, but um, it's just like a general contractor for any work you get done on your house. I mean, a homeowner could potentially deal with all the subcontractors and manage it themselves, but there's value to just outsourcing the whole project to someone with expertise. And it sounds like that's the role you play. Yes. Um, Okay, that's um, that's that's good. Um, let's let's turn a little bit to the competitive dynamics uh, of your industry. And so you you mentioned you really have a small share of a massive industry or total addressable market. Um, you just cover your core competencies. So how do you how do you gain share? What what are the market share shifts likely to be driven by over the next decade? And how do you how do you uh, take advantage of that? Well, it's fashion industry. I know, you know, furniture lasts a long time. When you think of fashion, you think of fairly short life product, but, but furniture is also a fashion industry. And if, yeah. you, if you, you, know, you go to the store five years from now, the product's going to look completely different. Um, so I think it, it starts with design, whether it's creative design or our ability to deliver designs to the customer specifications. So I, mean, I think that's the, the first driver in, in, gaining share and maintaining success is having good product. And it's sorry to interrupt, and that hasn't changed. I mean, that's, that's the way it's been for the last decade. That's the way it'll be for the next decade. I think so. Um, you know, obviously that the, the cycles will change. Speed to market is, is obviously more critical. Speed, uh, you know, from introduction, you know, 
for, for offering a constant supply of new product mm -hmm. seems to be a higher priority than it was. Uh, the old days, they would run a product for a month. Uh, you know, in, in a factory here, it was just, you know, one, one collection at a time. And that's no longer the case. But, what it, but the, go ahead. Well, I was, I'm sorry, I was going to ask what the, uh, so what's the pace of introduction, both in terms of how long does it take to introduce a new SKU, and then also maybe in any one year, how, how much your revenue is, is, would be, could be described as a new product? Um, on the hooker side of our business, which is our warehouse business that you know, we stock and sell a, a, a selected product line, um, we, we turn over, we introduce about a third of our SKUs new each year. Uh, you know, not all those, all those stick and, and we've increased our focus on, on best sellers and being in stock on best sellers, but we, we turn over roughly a third of our SKUs each year. The, the average product life cycle is three years. Um, on the home meridian business, we introduce a lot more product, but a, a lot of them are, you know, are samples for proprietary customers and, and don't make them, don't make that. I would guess that the turnover rate is probably similar, but, um, but a lot more samples are made because that's, that's part of that core competency is, is the ability to, 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 to design and source product. That is, that's helpful and that covers enough of, of that topic. I mean, when you get into the essence of companies, you can, I mean, I can spend hours just drilling down on, you know, how, where are the economic rents in the company's business model? So but I think, but I, I think we did a, a, a good job of, of overviewing that for you. So let's turn to, um, let's turn to your, company specific results. I know that the last couple of years margins have not been um, as high as they've been historically. So I was hoping you could get into what were some of the causes that depressed margins over the last year or two, and also then transition to where do you think margins can go on a sustainable basis? What would you consider normal? Well, our, uh, our, our we had a sensational year in our fiscal 19. Um, I think some of that was driven by the anticipation of tariffs. I think sales were bumped right at the end of the year in anticipation of the introduction of, of tariffs. On products. Paul, just to make sure everybody's on the same page, that's, Janu that's the fiscal year then into January of 19, right? So it's really mostly calendar 18. Yes. Okay, gotcha. <clears throat> so so we had a really had a really sensational year, which of course makes subsequent comparisons tougher. Uh, we we had a series of, of of issues, some of them missteps and some of them external issues. Uh, the introduction of tariffs on product from China was was sudden, and you know initially it was introduced at ten percent and then raised to twenty five percent on fairly short notice, uh, so that the industry really couldn't react. Uh, prices went up. I mean, there's, our suppliers were were also damaged by this and suppliers absorbed some of the costs. We absorbed some of the costs. We passed some of it along to our customers. Um, that was a major disruption. Uh, and then the, the transition costs of moving factories, are, all, are many of our suppliers moved factories to non-tariff countries, primarily Vietnam. But, but you know, there's training costs. There are uh, the costs of, of just physically relocating plus the, the 
the quality related issues that at a start, the ramp up costs. And so it, it cost our suppliers a lot of money too. And, and it was, so it was really, it was very disruptive to the industry in general, both uh, from the supplier end to us, to the, to our customers and on to the consumers. We had some, some other missteps internally too. Uh, frankly, we stocked up on inventory much as our customers did. We stocked up on inventory early in the year, wound up uh, paying excess freight and demerits costs to store that product as, as the industry turned down in early 2019. Uh, we had some internal issues with uh, a product return, you know, a couple of issues with one a major customer that involved uh, a, a return of about, in one case, $8 million worth of product, which we stored, we cleaned, and, and have, have since resold. Um, but there were chargebacks, freight charges, storage and cleaning charges all related to that. Um, we estimate about $10 million of our fiscal 20 um, operating income was impacted by, by these I can't say non-recurring, but but unusual charges. Yeah, that's a big number for a company your size. Ten million dollars of operating income. Yes, yes, it was. That was the primary driver. That plus the uh, you know the continued impact of tariffs, which, like I said, you know we absorbed some of the tariffs. Our our suppliers absorbed some, and we were forced to raise prices to some degree also. So so those the self-inflicted stuff plus the impact of tariffs. Uh, Last year, we're tough. This year, of course, you know we all know about the pandemic. Our our domestic manufacturing factory plants were shut down for four to six weeks, and then slow ramp up. And it, and while we're operating at generally full capacity now, we're still occasionally missing you know a, people who are subject to quarantine or or COVID infection. Uh -huh. uh, so so still a little bit erratic operations there. Um, <clears throat> We also, uh, in some cases, many of our major retailers were forced to close during the, uh, the March, April timeframe uh, as non-essential businesses. We did have some customers in, in alternate channels, the, uh, the clubs and, and some mass merchants that also sold food or, or, or household products were able to stay open, but many of our big, big customers were forced to close. I'm sure you're familiar with Macy's was closed for six weeks or more. And, and so a lot of orders were canceled. It was really disruptive. Um, we're now scrambling to try to get, to build inventories back and to get them back in stock because business has been really good for many of our customers now. But the disruption of being shut down and canceling orders and restarting the whole, trying to restart the whole process has been, has been difficult. So where do you think um, structurally, where should margins be in a in a normal year or average over time, uh, and I'm speaking specifically about operating margins. But however you want to look at it is fine. Gross margins should probably be in the in the, they'll be in the low twenties. Uh, I think last quarter gross margins were actually a little bit higher than usual because of the mix of higher margin hooker product versus our home meridian product, which is a lower margin, mm -hmm. higher volume. Uh, Going forward, I would say the gross margin should be around 21%. And operating margins should move, should be able to move to the mid to high single digits. You know, that's seven, move from six to seven to, to eight 
Um, our hooker division operating margins are over 10%. Uh, Home Meridian, typically in the five, five and a half, six percent range. And, and so that they should average up into the seven to eight percent operating margin. Yeah, that's uh, that'd be terrific performance. And that's um, ultimately what attracted us to your stock, which I think uh, might be a good transition to to the topic of capital allocation. Okay. Um, because it is a low capital intense business at those levels of margins, you, um, you'll be generating a significant amount of free cash flow, I think, um, excluding acquisitions. And you already have a very strong balance sheet with, uh, I think you're already in a net cash position. Oh, yes. So, so what, what are your, uh, what are your thoughts and plans for allocating free cash flow? Well, strong balance sheet has been a foundation of hooker furniture. Uh, I, I think capital allocation starts with maintaining that strong balance sheet. Uh, you know, we we were able to survive the 2007-8 recession. I'd say that we never had to make a decision based on the need to generate cash. Mm -hmm. We never lost money during that period of time. So I, I think the philosophy is part of that culture that we talked about at the beginning. Of, of being cautious and conservative, but at the same time, being willing to be willing to to go the direction we need to go, whether it's imports, whether it's an acquisition, as the case we did. So I think that going forward, our primary goal for capital allocation is a to maintain the balance sheet, probably more conservatively than than many might think we need to. I think that's just served us well over the years. Mm -hmm. Is to have have cash in reserve. Uh, and acquisition is probably our primary goal. I think you know, we've, we've done two acquisitions in the last four years uh, and believe that we can continue to grow by acquisition. I don't think we're in a hurry to grow by acquisition, but I think that that would probably be our primary capital allocation strategy was to, was to look for other channels, price points, um, particular customers, um, maybe products that we that would increase our diversification and get us into the into advantage channels going forward. Uh, we have a profile, an acquisition profile that we that we screen potential acquisitions against, and I think that would be our first choice for um, for capital allocation. One real quick question: Are you willing to go into a net debt position, maybe temporarily, uh, to to consummate an acquisition? Um, yes. Okay. I think that we'd need to see, you know, we'd need to model a path out and I think it would be, a, the, the modeling would be conservative, but absolutely willing to do that if, if it was the right opportunity. Like I say, we're not in a hurry to do acquisition. We're not going to try to, we're not just trying to grow sales, but we're trying to grow a, a profitable, diverse business. Well, what are your financial metrics for deciding to pull the trigger on, a, on an acquisition? Uh, well, our primary metric is, is really not a financial metric. It's, it's how does it fit with the rest of our business? And, and, that, and that's, our, that's our first consideration. You know, we, we, could, we can guess at a number, but I think that we look for something that's gonna be accretive in the, in maybe, if not the first year of, acquisi of, of acquisition, but maybe the, by the second year of acquisition that it's gonna be accretive to earnings. Um, we would look for for cash requirements to run the business. I think mm -hmm. we probably want to maintain, you know, look for a, a fairly asset light acquisition. 
and um, and and more importantly, like I said, more importantly is the fit and the ability to just be a creative to profitability. And yeah. the and fit's the really interesting. I mean, I'm picturing a matrix where you have um, maybe product category and distribution channel, um, and 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 you break down the seventy-five billion dollars served addressable market by those, you know, kind of those two simple characteristics, and you. What I think you're implying is that you feel like you might have holes, uh, or blank spaces within that very detailed matrix that you can fill with an acquisition. That's that's exactly it. Yes. Um, okay, that's that's helpful. The, I want to come back to the idea of accretion within a year or two, though, because that's pretty. That's a that's a pretty easy uh, hurdle to jump in this environment, especially if you're just you know, using cash that might otherwise be earning 0%. Um, yeah, I mean, it's got to be meaningful accretion. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, um, I, well, at a hurdle, you can set a hurdle rate and you can do, you know, all the finance calculations. I, you know, I may have to go back to Google and, and learn how to do them again. But I think it's more about the fit. Uh, and, and obviously, being accretive to earnings, you know, meaningfully accretive to earnings uh, and, and comparing that to other potential uses of the cash without setting just artificial hurdle rates is, is the approach that we've used. Yeah, no, that's fair. And, um, you know, we, I'm not a big believer in super detailed DCF models. I think you can miss the forest for the trees. And of course, Warren Buffett's famous uh, line or advice, not exactly sure how it got out there, but he, he, he believes you should be able to do uh you know, a DCF model on the back of a napkin, or uh, I'm not sure if that's exactly what he said, but it needs to be simple and obvious. And I, I would, and if I were in your seat, I would feel the same way about acquisitions. Um, and yet, there's still a kind of an implied hurdle rate, even if you're not modeling it out to the decimal point. Um, and I, and you, you mentioned uh, alternative uses of capital, and so you could buy back your own stock at these levels and earn a pretty good I, I, it appears to me that that would be a pretty good return on invested capital um, based on your potential earnings. You know, and we discussed that a lot. Um, I think the general consensus is that we would rather build a, a bigger, stronger company. Um, you know, it's, it's a pretty fragmented industry and we feel like there are a lot of opportunities to, to add to what we've got. Uh, I think we've stated pretty publicly our goal is to be a, to, to reach a billion dollars in sales by 2025. Um, and that some of that's going to be organic growth, so, which which will also require funding. Um, but I think a, a piece of that has to be acquisition, and, and and I know that's sort of an artificial hurdle, right? That's an artificial hurdle as well. But I think that we we believe that we can be a stronger company by continuing to to add you know, to fill in the holes. There aren't a lot of holes, but but there are always price points or customers or channels of distribution that that aren't addressed as fully as as, as they could be. Uh, and of course, you know, retail is evolving, you know, day by day. Uh, obviously, e-commerce, I don't think you can call e-commerce an emerging channel anymore. Uh, but, but even within e-commerce, there are, there are you know, different, different channels, different deliveries. So I think that there, there are still opportunities out there. And that's been a priority over share repurchase. Now, obviously, there's a point where share repurchase becomes pretty compelling. But we also have a pretty low turnover. Uh, it, 
fairly, you know, we have a less than 12 million shares outstanding. To take a lot of shares off the market may not always be the best for liquidity either. And I know all, some shareholders, some shareholders agree with that. Other shareholders wish we'd take all the shares off the market we could. Um, and and so that's that's a little bit of a, you know, let's say that's why we discuss it all the time. Yeah. We also, you know, we also like we've been, we've grown our dividend five years in a row and, and hope to continue to grow the dividend. I don't think we don't want to be a dividend leader, but we want to offer a substantial dividend. And I think that that takes some of the volatility and some of the risk, especially for a long-term shareholder. Um, the paid while, paid while you wait philosophy, I think, mm -hmm. I think has made us attractive to some funds and to some individual shareholders as well. Uh, in fact, paying an increasing dividend, paying a steady dividend, we've paid a dividend for over 50 years and increased, let's say increased it the last five, we didn't reduce it during the last uh, recession. And I think that that's gotten us into some funds and attracted some attention that we might not otherwise not have attracted. Okay, yeah, thanks for that, um, that, that perspective. I wanna go back to the acquisition environment. Uh, are you seeing has 2020 created opportunities for you because there might be some uh, competitors that maybe not be, I don't think you're, it doesn't sound like you'd be interested in any distressed asset, but they're going to need capital to grow out of this business. And maybe they don't have, feel like they have access to capital um, in this recovery. Yeah, that's a fair assessment. We're, I don't think we're interested in a distressed business we would prefer to buy a, a business that's running well, a business that management was committed to staying with. Um, so I think it's more about the fit here rather than picking up something and trying to, and trying to fix it. Um, the, uh, um, is there, did, are you seeing a pretty good flow of opportunities or uh, I've heard over the last several years that uh, the acquirers, People in your seat just aren't seeing attractive um, uh, opportunities. There are there are deals. Um, some of the more most of, many of them are not that attractive either because they don't fit our parameters or because they're they're distressed or troubled. Um, I, I think your description of a business that that maybe is not troubled but needs capital to grow is probably a more likely scenario. Um, I say a, a successful business that, that looks like it could use, a, you know, a, a, an outside, a helping hand is more of the kind of business that, we, that we'd be interested in rather than a, uh, rather than a distressed or turnaround. So um, we're seeing, we're seeing a, a flow of deals. I wouldn't say that the market is, is really rich, but I'd say that, that there are, there are deals out there and I think, you know, not being in a hurry is an important an important part of our decision process too. Always, yeah, and it's always a mistake to be in a hurry to allocate capital. Yes, yeah. <clears throat> uh, is there a size that's uh, particularly uh, a sweet spot for you? Not really, uh, you know, we made a, uh, <clears throat> we acquired a, a company that was bigger than ours in 2016. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we're I don't think we're scared off by size. Obviously, there's some limit to how much debt we're willing to undertake. Um, but a small tuck-in type acquisition is also appropriate if it if it fills a niche. Our our acquisition of Shenandoah Furniture in 2017 was uh, a 40 to 40-ish million dollar company. Um, 
that that addressed a, a, a growing specific market. So mm -hmm. uh, something like that's appropriate, or something bigger. If it if it if we didn't have too much overlap, I think you know the bigger you get, the more risk you run that you have a lot of overlap, which isn't really our objective to is to, to buy a business that we're in in channels we're already in. So maybe a. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it may be a twenty-five to fifty million dollar in revenue company with good growth outlook, with a good growth prospect, uh, might be tip be considered typical for you. That seems like a, a a likely scenario, yeah. And then, what do you generally have to pay for uh, a company like that? Uh, five to multiples are five to six typically. EBITDA. Right. Where DNA is probably not that much. Yeah, that's good. Okay, well there you go. There's a there's an implied hurdle rate in that. Uh, so if you could do, we'd we'd love to see you do those deals all day. Yeah, like I, you know, I say we don't have a formal structured, you know, of of hurdles and targets. Of that. But but I think you know, just just looking at the business, you know what you you know you have a gut feel for what's what's going to work. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and I know what you're saying. All right, Paul. Well, I ran through all my topics. I really appreciate you being uh, forthcoming and transparent with, with your answers. Is there anything that we didn't cover that uh, you think that maybe the public markets don't understand about your business or, uh, or that you think is particularly important to your outlook? Um, I think we've, we've covered a lot. I think we've covered our philosophies. You know, we're, we're a, in our 96th year of operation. Um, Love it. We lost we lost money in um, nineteen twenty nine or thirty depending on depending on who you talk to it's either twenty nine or thirty and this year we we did we booked a uh, an impairment charge mm -hmm. a net thirty three million dollar impairment charge on uh, on goodwill which was driven by COVID related valuations um, the, the business is still fundamentally sound yeah uh, but it was just you know stock price at, at the end of a quarter was was the depths of the, the COVID um, uncertainty. So uh, I think, you know, we've, we've got a long track record and I know in the securities industry, you can say past performance is not an indicator of the future, but I think that, that the company philosophy continues and, and you know, I think we've proven that to be adaptable, consistent, conservative, you're well aware of our conservative balance sheet. Mm -hmm. uh, we are, we're not debt averse, but we are debt cautious. And, and are willing to do that to continue to grow. So I, I think it's it's more of the soft stuff, you know, the uh, just the, the company philosophy. And I'm not sure, you know, there's a there are a lot of public companies out there vying for attention. Um, I think that's that's where we get lost. Is, mm -hmm. is is there are there are a lot of companies vying for attention from people like you, and in, 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 especially in your sector, there are a lot of small cap companies out there. So um, I, I, I like to tell the story and I'm, I'm really proud to be part of this company. And I, I think that the company has a, a strong, solid future ahead of it because, because of the foundation of the past. Yeah, that's terrific. I can see why you feel that way. And it sounds like Martinsville is a nice uh, place. So I'm going to have to get down there and visit it sometime. We'd be happy to host you. Um, if we ever get back to normal, happy to have you at our showroom in High Point at the Furniture Market, which is a, a real high energy event that, that really showcases the industry. Love to have I've you. never been. I've heard it's, it's really good experience. And so if you make it to Furniture Market, we'd love to take you up here. Of course, you know, it's warehouses and offices, but we'd love to have you. All right. I'll take you up on that. Can't wait. 
All right. All right. Thanks, Paul. I really appreciate your time and enjoy your holidays. Same to you. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity to do this. I, like I said, I'm really proud of being part of this company and love to talk about it. At the time of this interview, Azarius holds this company's security and client portfolios. However, this company interview is being provided for information purposes only and should not be perceived as a recommendation to purchase or sell this security. Azarius does not receive any special compensation from this company.